Welcome to the Authentic Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea John. Today, we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. This Bible study is recorded live on Thursday nights with a group of people get together to dive deep into the scriptures. So in addition to mine, you'll hear some different voices. You'll hear questions and commentaries, perspectives. We don't all agree. We all bring something different to the table, but it lends itself to a conversation that goes deep and leads us further into the knowing and loving of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening because this adds to the conversation. And if you have something to add, to share, or if you have a question, you can always email me at hello at andreajohn.com. In this session, we dive deep into John 2. If there's any visuals that we mention, you can find them in the show notes for reference. Oh, just one more thing. Before we dive into the Bible study, I'd like to ask that you like and subscribe to this YouTube or podcast channel. This will help increase the odds that someone will find this life-giving content. Don't forget to share it with your family and friends. Let's get started. Um, yes, start with reading verse one. I can tell you that I have a comment on like the third word, but I'm going to tell you why. Um, so you can read, just read the first verse. Okay. So, uh, this translation says now on the third day, Jesus's mother went to a wedding feast in the Galilean village of Cana. So a few notes there that may not make a big difference in the story, but I think they're pretty cool facts, you know, that may help with context. Um, So interesting is that it says like yours also says it's on the third day, right? In your translation. Um, Most translations say on the third day, the NLT for some reason says the next day, which I found a little very interesting. But um, the third day is interesting because of um, that would be in terms of the week, it's Tuesday, right? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So in Jewish, in Jewish tradition, do you have a question? No, no, no. He was just making a comment. You guys are always welcome to interrupt me. So in Jewish tradition, till today, there are people who get married on Tuesdays. And the reason is that it's considered a day of double blessing. So when you go back to the story of Genesis, I found this to be really cool. That's why I want to share it. So when you go back to the story of Genesis and creation, God says it is good seven times, but there's a day that God doesn't say it is good. So on the first day, God says it is good. On the second day, God does not say it is good. And then on the third day, God said, it is good twice. So Jewish tradition, oral tradition says, oh, there's something special about the third day. 
God gives double blessings. So there's a lot of things that people tended to do back then and some till today on Tuesdays. So you'll see here that there's a wedding going on and John is specifically saying on the third day. So I thought that was a little cool thing. The other thing that I wanted to know is um, the location. So it says Cana in Galilee. When you look at even today, they're not quite sure where this location is. Only John mentions it. He mentions it here and a few other places within his gospel. The only extra biblical documents that have this location is actually Josephus, who was a historical writer of the, of the first century. And he mentioned that he had been there. So they're not quite sure where it is. One little cool thing is uh, they're doing some excavations in an area within Galilee, and they've actually found um, those cleansing, like a cleansing bath and a bunch of pots. So they don't know if it's from the ones referenced in the story, but it's kind of interesting, the location, even though they're not sure. But Cana of Galilee... They're not quite sure where this is, but Cana, when you look up the name, Cana means zealous. So there are some scholars and historians that say it's possible that this was a location near the Galilee that was where the zealots lived, like kind of like a little compound of theirs. So some speculate it could have been a zealot wedding or whatnot. Um, keep reading. Read uh, verse two. Um, then it says, Jesus and his disciples were all invited to the banquet. Okay. So many guests, they ran out of wine. Okay, you can stop there. So obviously we see that Jesus's mother is there. And he made a point to say that Jesus and his disciples were invited. So clearly there was some sort of intimacy with what the families, right? Because they were invited and Jesus had his disciples. It's kind of cool. Like you guys have watched the chosen. So they kind of capture a little bit of that. So, um, so, you know, you kind of put all that stuff together. I think the whole zealot idea is pretty neat when we go into the connection into the cleansing of the temple. So we'll talk about that when we go. So you can keep reading David. Um, okay. You can start at three again. When the wine ran out, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no wine. Okay, hold on, hold on there really quick. Mary had some sort of influence, right? Because she knew there was no wine and she went to Jesus and was like, hey, you got, you got to do something. But what was cool about this is that Jesus said in the translation I have, it says, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. That in the Greek, that the translation of Greek, it's actually an idiom that Jesus uses there, which means it was a saying. And the saying is, because it almost sounds like Jesus is being a little disrespectful to his mom. Like, woman, what, what, are, you, what, what are you expecting, right? That's kind of how you hear it because of how we use that word. Like when we yeah. say woman, right? So the idiom 
the the literal translation. So if you did, don't reword it, it says, "Woman, what to me and to you." So I'm going to read the commentary from um, this section. It's from the NET commentary because I thought it was really cool and gave a little bit of a perspective on that saying. So that's the translation, what to me and to you, and they have it written in Greek. The equivalent Hebrew expression in the Old Testament had two basic meanings. When one person was unjustly bothering another, the injured party could say, what to me and to you, meaning what have I done to you that you should do this to me? And there's actually three references from the Old Testament where that idiom was used. Then, then the second one is when someone was asked to get involved in a matter he felt was no business of his, he could say to the one asking him, what to me and to you, meaning that is your business. How am I involved? And then there's two different um, Old Testament references. So there's two options to interpret this idiom. One is it implies hostility while the option two implies merely disengagement. Mere disengagement is almost certainly to be understood here as better fitting the context. Although some of the Greek fathers took the remark as a rebuke to Mary. And then they, in this commentary, they believe that that rebukes unlikely because of who we're talking about, right? And the nature of their relationship. So I thought that was interesting because the direct translation does sound a little bitter. <laughs> okay, you can keep reading. Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the very top. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did. When the head steward tasted the water they had that had turned into wine, when the head steward tasted the water that had turned into wine, not knowing where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the first sign of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few. So there's some scholars that say, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree, but there's some scholar. Well, one thing I do agree with is that many scholars believe that Mary was very knowledgeable of the text of the scriptures of the Old Testament, and they allude that there's some there's some banter going on based on some things in the old Testament. I just don't see it. So I didn't look it up enough to talk about it because I'm just like, ah, I think you're reaching a little bit too much, but I just thought that I would um, mention that because for some reason, Jesus tells her that it's not his time, but she just 
it's almost like she ignores it and she's yeah. like yeah just just do what he says right and he does like he winds up doing something about it what i found to be interesting is that there must have been wine casks like places that they were holding the wine because the wine ran out so why did jesus use water pots to do this miracle like he could have easily said hey go fill the wine casks with water and done it but for some reason he chose to use the water pots that john made a point to let us know that they were pots and they were there for the custom of purification so i'm assuming that he's talking about how they washed their hands and their feet because they uh, some of them probably had traveled in they probably washed themselves before um there are customs of purification for the bride um and the groom could do it too but it was more for the bride before the wedding but those usually are the baths that we talked about the other week so it's just interesting that he chose to use the water pots instead of the wine casks and but when you think about one of the things that i was reading is when you think about the symbolism because john's whole message and we're going to get to this at the end where he states his objective and purpose for writing this gospel but his purpose is so that we would have witness and testimony that jesus is the messiah so here he makes a point at the end of that passage to say in in uh, verse 11 he says this was the beginning of his signs, right? So this is one of his first signs and miracles. So it's almost like there's some symbolism going on here. Yeah. So I was wondering, like, the water was there for the purification of the outside. And we know that wine, in the end, winds up representing his blood. And it's his blood that forgives us and washes us and cleanses us and heals us. So it's almost like, was Jesus alluding to the water washes your outside, but what I'm bringing and what I bring to you is like they said, it's better than the first. It's better than the law because the law gives you, the law is what told them they needed to wash themselves to purify. It's better than the law. So the second wine's better than the first wine that was served but also it's one that's going to clean inside, not just outside. So I thought that was an interesting perspective. Did you guys get any, like, what are your insights to this whole story? I've always wondered about this too, just because it is Jesus's first miracle. And I've always found that very interesting that he chose this to do it. Um, but like, I, I find it interesting that they tell us there's six pots, six, the number six represents like man. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, speculating whether it was 20 or 30 gallons, if it was 20, well, that represents like redemption. And then the whole fact of wine being connected to blood kind of makes me think of like, maybe this was also a prophetic act of like Jesus um, showing that his wine, his blood was ultimately going to be the best and therefore making it better than the, the blood of the sacrifices that people would do 
Yeah, that was that same perspective. Do you have anything to add, Dan? Uh, I have an, uh, a suggestion always. Okay. Uh, what was the miracle all about? What was Pro the miracle? Providing something that was needed. More I specifically. Guess. That something that ran out. <laughs> yeah. What is it? <laughs> the text says what it what it is. Wine. What was the miracle? Okay, was wine correct? Yeah. So they ran out of old wine, right? And Jesus is going to make what? New wine. Do, do, isn't that a parable about you don't put new wine, new wine in old wine skin? Uh huh. And it says I can't do that. That's going to ruin the, you know, if the you... wine skin. Yeah. Yes. So I have this here, and it's made out of stone now. So and that, that's just my opinion. That's no, that's a good, good one. I think it's I think it's a really deep event. Like I think there's a lot to it in many different ways. Yeah, I found it interesting, too. I don't know why I don't have any background, but that it says in verse 11, when he says this is the beginning of his signs and he said manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So it was almost, you know, it was such a private event. It wasn't public in any way. It was almost, did Jesus wind up doing this for his disciples so that they would see and believe as well? Because it's mm -hmm. just interesting that John pointed out that the disciples believed almost like they didn't believe before, but now they believe. <laughs> And now what you what where are you reading from the entity? Who me? Yeah. Just now? No. Yeah. Uh, right now I have I have both open, but yeah, I was I'm that one I read from, from um NASB NASB. Okay, the NASB says this is the beginning of the science. It says this this beginning of his signs Jesus okay. did in Cana. It is beginning. I'm reading from the ESV, uh -huh. and it says, this is the first of his signs. Beginning and first is not the same thing. True, true, true. Let me see I what this is. In the beginning of my life, I could be already like two years old, two months old. So what is it, really? That's true. In NET, it says, Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs. Okay. In this way, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Yeah, because of this first sign he made, he did. Yeah. First. Okay, so then verse 12, it's kind of interesting because sometimes the headings of the Bibles, like they're all different. It all depends on the publisher. Um, so... I've seen a few different ones here. There's almost like this middle section, which is verse 12. And it says, after this, he went down to uh, Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. I just thought that was interesting because it actually talks about his brothers. And we don't hear a lot about his brothers. People talk mm -hmm. about his brothers, but clearly his brothers were with them. And then they went and they stayed in Capernaum for a few days. 
And then it says, now the Jewish feast of Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem and I had shared um, Exodus, I think it was Exodus 12, right? Exodus 12, where it talks about Passover. Did you guys have a chance to read that? Okay. So do you, do you know what Passover is? Like we hear about Passover a lot. I didn't, I went to go read what the Bible actually says about Passover this week, because I knew the concept, but I didn't know the details. So I'm just going to read it because I think it's really important for us to understand, especially because throughout the book of John, um, he mentions Passover a lot. There's going to be a few events and signs that John points out that include Passover. And one of, you know, a big one is obviously going to come later on in the book when we get to the last supper, because that they were there celebrating Passover. So Exodus 12, I'm going to read out of the NET because that's what I have in front of me right now. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be your beginning of months. It will be your first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel on the 10th day of this month, they each must take a lamb for themselves, according to their families, a lamb for each household. If any household is too small for a lamb, the man and his next door neighbor are to take a lamb according to the number of people. You will make your count for the lamb according to how much each one can eat. Just like think about the details that God is giving them right now about what they're going to eat and how much. Your lamb must be perfect. So this actually means the word flawless. A male of one year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You must care for it until the 14th day of this month, and then the whole community of Israel will kill it around sundown. They will take some of the blood and put it on the two side posts and top of the doorframe of the houses where they will eat. So I knew about the doorframe, but that's pretty much all I know. They will eat the meat the same night. They will eat it roasted over the fire with bread without yeast. So unleavened bread as we're used to hearing and with bitter herbs, do not eat it raw or boiled in water. Like, like God said, don't boil this thing in water. You must roast it. Like he's, he's like the chef, you know, tell them. God, God is smart. Yeah. Right. He like, knows, he know, he knows it's nasty. Good. Yeah. But roast it over the fire with its head, its legs and its entrails. <laughs> that will throw us out right? <laughs> you must leave nothing until morning, which means you have to, like your family has to eat everything. Can't have leftovers, but you must burn with fire, whatever remains of it until morning. So there's no leftovers. This is how you are to eat it. Dress to travel your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt in the same night, and I will attack all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of humans and of animals, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and so that when I see the blood, 
I will pass over you. Hence, pass over. And this plague will not fall on you to destroy you when I attack the land of Egypt. This day will become a memorial for you and you will celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You will celebrate it perpetually as a lasting ordinance. In one of my translations, it says like till the end of time or something like that. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. Surely on the first day, you must put away yeast from your houses because anyone who eats bread made with yeast from the first day to the seventh will be cut off from Israel. And some translation says you'll be cut off from the community. On the first day, there will be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day, there will be a holy convocation for you. You must do no work of any kind on them, only what every person will eat. So basically, they were only allowed to work to prepare the meal. So you will keep the feast of unleavened bread because on this very day, I brought your regiments out from the land this very day out from the land of Egypt. And so you must keep this day perpetually as a lasting ordinance. In the first month from the 14th day of the month, in the evening, you will eat bread made without yeast until the 21st day of the month in the evening. For seven days, yeast must not be found in your houses for whoever eats that, eats what is made with yeast, that person will be cut off from the community of Israel, whether a resident, whether a resident foreigner or born in the land, you will not eat anything made with yeast in all the places where you live, you must eat bread made without yeast. So it goes on and you can read it if you want. But one of the things that fascinated me when I read that is, and I'm going to explain why it matters when we move into the cleansing of the temple, but the foreshadowing of the last supper. When I read that and I thought, okay, the Passover involves um, the blood and it involves unleavened bread, right? So, and there was wine. We all, you know, for those of you who know Jewish tradition, there's wine at the Passover meal. So we know that Jesus will eventually be at the last supper. And then he uses the elements in front of him the wine and the bread to say, this is me. I am now the one who will protect you. So when judgment comes, I know to pass over your house because you belong to me. That's my blood. And he is the unleavened bread. He is, he is the one that we should eat from. So I've heard people say like, oh, imagine how scandalous it was when Jesus said, you must drink of my blood and eat of my body. But now I looked and I said, was it really that scandalous to them? Because they knew very well the Passover meal. They knew exactly the significance. It's not like us. Was it really scandalous or did they truly get it? Like he is the lamb of God. This, he was who we were celebrating. Like to me, it was just like how many of them sat in complete awe of the dots just connected. Mm. And here to us, it's so scandalous. But I read that in the Bible. I didn't have to go anywhere. And I was like, they must have known. Makes sense. Right? Like, I don't know. I just so thought that was pretty was, cool. Was the Last Supper, did it fall on, on Passover? Yeah, so they gathered 
for Passover, Jesus was traveling with them. And in, in John 13, it talks about that he was traveling with them. And then he sent two of his disciples to go find a place for them to go have, have supper. Oh, that's right. So it was Passover. It was so Passover. Crazy. Like the, the timing. That's why that. I thought it's good for us to know Passover because John references Passover yeah. and there's a few different things, uh, stories about the life of Jesus that they don't believe was in the same year. So Jesus yeah. only was in public ministry for three years. Yeah. But every Passover, something happened. Mm. So now you have this where Passover is now here. It says Passover was near. So Jesus went to Jerusalem and he found in the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their table. Um, And he made a scourge of cords. Let me read it out of this translation because I um, I have some notes here. Can I ask one more question about Exodus? Oh, of course. Yeah. What, what is the significance of like the yeast? Like they're pounding, like, no yeast, no yeast, no yeast. I actually don't know. Mike asked me and I said, oh, I have to go look it up. And I forgot to go look it up. Dad, do you happen to know what's the beef with yeast? Why is it so bad? Yeah, because when you cook something or you bake something with yeast, with yeast does not last long. Okay. Like Jewish people, even today, when they make that matzo bread, matzo, whatever it's called, it can last a year. Why? Because there's no yeast. Lasts a long time. Okay. Oh, that's that's true because it's what causes it to grow. It's almost like uh, it can become, it can get bacteria or whatever. Yeah, it turns to mold. Fake stuff, really, basically. Interesting. We're very um, academic in our terms here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We are for the everyday people. Um, Okay, so verse 14. He found in the temple courts those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at the tables. So he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts with the sheep and the oxen. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. So when it says here, because I always was fascinated, like Jesus didn't bring a whip. He 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 fashioned a whip. He made a whip. So in the commentaries here, I just thought it was interesting. In the Greek, there's actually a word that in our language would be the word like. So they say it's it's more accurate to say he made something that was like a whip, but not an actual whip. Because whips were braid. I don't know if it makes a difference. I also heard someone say that You know how in those times, and you'll see it even in the series of Chosen, they have their belts and on their belts, they have um, like there's the cords and the tassels. That's what I was looking, the tassels. There's something with the tassels and there's an idiom or a saying that can kind of be like, that may be what Jesus did, but it's it's just, to me, it's not likely because it says he made he made, um, and all the other ones. One interesting thing with this story too, is that John does, uh, there's the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
because a lot of the stories are the same in all those three gospels and they're pretty much in sync. John is different from those, but this story is actually found in all four of the gospels. They're all worded a little bit differently, but John's account is pretty different from all the other ones, including the words that Jesus says. So there are scholars that believe that it's possible that there's no proof of this, but it's possible that this account of Jesus going into the temple is not the same account as the ones that the other gospels talk about. One of the reasons they conclude this is not only because of the way it's told, but also because of where, the timing. So in all the other gospels, when Jesus goes into the temple to cleanse it, it's at the end of his life, like near his death, where John is talking about it in the very beginning. What's difficult about that is that John's not necessarily following a timeline throughout his book. He's more focused on telling the stories. Um, so, so his may not necessarily be in chronic, chronological order in terms of the, the stories that he tells. Hmm. But, but it's, it's an interesting note um, because... There's this, and I have to see if it's in the scripture. So I apologize for even mentioning this without doing my research. I think it's, I don't know if it's Jewish tradition or if it's in the law, but there was, when a home was filled with mold and Mike can explain this better. When a home was filled with mold, people, someone would go into the home and they would cleanse the home and then you, you know, you had to leave for a little bit and you came back. If the mold came back, then the home needed to be destroyed because the mold won't go away. So this, some scholars, not all scholars, some scholars believe that it's possible that in the beginning of Jesus's ministry, when he wasn't well known yet, that he went into the temple and without as much aggression as the other gospels, he did this where he cleansed it. And he said, this is not what this house is for. I have zeal of my father's house and we're going to finish reading it. Um, but the other thing that's interesting, it says temple courts. And I shared um, in the email and also in the group a, a picture of what the temple looked like, but it has indications of the different areas of the temple. And one of the things that I had no idea about was that there actually was an area for Gentiles in the temple. So mm -hmm. where this where this was happening, where people were exchanging money, was in that Gentile place. That's why the Jews felt like it was okay for it to happen. It was a Gentile place. They were selling um and it was the only place within the temple where Roman money could be exchanged because to the Jews, for example, you couldn't give your Roman money in the temple because it had Caesar's head on it. Therefore, it's idolatry. Mm. But for some reason, they were totally okay with Roman money being exchanged within the temple and them making 
Roman money within the temple through the Gentiles. Interesting. So it's, it's, Eventually, we're gonna go. We're gonna go verse by verse. It's gonna take us a while, but then I want to come back and I want to look at the book of John as a whole and split it up into big chunks. But one of the big themes of Jesus is he came for all. He came for everyone. And at first, he had his people. He had his children, the Israelites. They were his people, and he was working through them to fulfill his purposes on the earth. And he had to, Jesus had to come because God wanted all people to be his. So Jesus is that way. He is the way to get to the Father. That's what it's all about. So now it doesn't matter if you're born an Israelite or not, you too can be a child of God. And in the next chapter, which is why I, I wanted to wait on that one, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again, that's going to come into play a lot. But Jesus is coming in and saying, hey, you're using the Gentiles to make money. And you're totally okay with this. You're turning the temple, this place of God, into a place where you're taking advantage of people and you're turning it into a marketplace, something that it shouldn't be. So I thought that was interesting. Which, which area was for the Gentiles? So oh, there it is. do you see it? Yeah. I see it now. So I think it was the two, I think it was like two sides. Yeah. I tried to get a, a good picture. Some of them was confusing. I see the connection of the yeast in the home and in the temple it wasn't necessarily that they were selling things was it like their heart then or was it the fact that they were selling things no i think jesus was being literal here when he went in okay. but it's it always to me jesus i always see jesus taking things back to the matter of the heart that's just an outer expression of what was happening yeah you know that's the yeah. way I see it. Dad, do you have anything you want to add? No. Okay. So I'll just keep reading. Um, so he made a whip of cords, drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. And, you know, I, I just want to add here because a lot of people look at churches or ministries and even that, like, you know, we've heard people criticize other people that charge for a conference or whatever. And there's criticism there because they're making money on it, whatever. I have my opinions. I won't get into that. But I also want to make a point that sometimes, like recently, I've had my own experience where you have Christian people who open a business and they take advantage of Christian people in the name of God. They're not related. Their business isn't related to the church, but they use the name of God to make money and steal money and take money from people. Hmm. And to me, this that's the same thing. So you may not be doing it inside the church walls, but the question is, are you doing it, period? Are you taking advantage of people? Are you being a hypocrite? 
And to me, that's what Jesus was saying. There was like so much going on here. I've not, like, if I'm being honest, I've not read all the laws in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. To me, that stuff was over my head. I'm actually more fascinated with it now. So I'm going to go, go read and like learn a little bit more, but only because I feel like when we understand that stuff, it adds some depth to what actually was happening. So then verse 17 says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will devour me. So then the Jewish leaders responded, what sign can you show us since you're doing these things? And Jesus replied, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. Then the Jewish leader said to him, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. And are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed that the scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. On verse 17 uh -huh. and verse 19 on the Aramaic translation, uh -huh. uh, we read the following. On 17, at the end of the verse, says, zeal for your house will consume me, right? Uh-huh. On, on the Aramaic trans trans translation, it says, uh, zeal for your house made me courageous. Huh. Right? And on verse 19, where it says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise, raise it up. Yeah. On Aramaic translation says destroy the jewish religion and i will rebuild it destroy my body and i will rise up in three days that's what the aramaic translation says oh wow let me see what it says he answers to them destroy yeah so basically which is what i believe John points to the fact that as the place where men go in order to meet God, the temple has been supplemented, su supplanted and replaced by Jesus himself in whose resurrected person people may now encounter God. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was interesting too that John points out again about how the disciples remembered this and believed the scriptures. So I thought that was interesting that he's pointing out again that the disciples believed because of this. I hadn't noticed that before. And then it just finishes off saying now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of Passover, many people believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs he was doing, but Jesus was would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew what, what was in man. Mm -hmm. And look, look where they are. They are, they are in the temple, right? Right. In the temple. They're not in the sanctuary. They are in the temple. Everything is going, all kinds of businesses are going on, going outside the temple. And Inside the perimeter, then they have the sanctuary, right? Right. Remember, a lot of those these people selling the pigeons, the oxen, and the sheep were very dishonest. There right. were all the illegal translation, the tra uh, transactions going on. Everybody's 
selling a, a sick goat as a new one and all these kinds of, or they shouldn't even be allowed to sell them because that was illegal. Right. So they had to be without blemish, like Jesus is without blemish. He had to give his life. So these people are presenting, in a way, a false Jesus. A Jesus with leaven. You see the connection with Exodus now? Yeah. Leaven and leaven. So, so they're all outside doing all these dealings going on. Everything is going on. And they have to, now they have to go into the other part of the temple where they have to go through another door. And look, they cannot go in on the, under those conditions. The altar, what's the first thing they see? Is the altar, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Isn't it? When they go it's, into the sanctuary? Before they get into, yeah. Yeah. They go into the sanctuary, they get it first, altar, sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Then they have the labor. Hopefully, not everything gets burned up. At the altar, <laughs> right. So now they they gotta they have to wash themselves, and they have to look at themselves. That's why the labor had all these mirrors that they came from the women. So when you're washing yourself now, after you sacrifice yourself, you're washing yourself, and you you're looking at the mirror, and you can contemplate you and just look at you and nobody else, right? Mm -hmm. And look at that. Then they have to go from there. They're going to go and they see the table of showbread on one side. They see the menorah. I mean, the, the bread of life, the menorah, Christ, the light of the world. They have the, the altar of incense. Jesus prays for us. And then they go in and they go, Holy of Holies. And you have the Ark of the Covenant and whatever was in the Ark of the Covenant, those three things. So listen, they, they are. All, if we're not in the Holy of Holies, we are going to go through this that they're going, that Jesus is looking at right there. You know, because those people were considered, many of them, holy people. But meanwhile, they, they know that the practices they are having in the temple are not legal. They should have not be doing that. Yeah. That's why the leaven is so important. That's why Exodus, the passage you read in Exodus, and this just fits so right. This is all leaven here outside the temple, not in the Holy of Holies. That's why when the Bible says in our translation, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, that word temple is the wrong word because there's a lot of bad stuff going on. In a way, <laughs> there's a lot of bad yeah. stuff going on going on in us, but the proper translation should be, we are the sanctuary, sanctuary. of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But the Not meeting the place, that's true, because when the meeting place was on that throne, it wasn't around it. It was in the Holy of Holies where God is. And that's why they had to be, that's why they had to go through the sacrifice and be purified before they got there so that they could encounter God and not die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And outside, at the end, we were talking about animals, but once you get closer to God, it's no more sacrifices of animals, like in the Old Testament. Now it's you. You present yourself, yourself. as Roman says, Roman. You present yourself as a living sacrifice. So there's a great connection between the Old Testament, like Exodus, and, and this uh -huh. here, the temple and the Holy of Holies. There's 
so beautiful. And this language here that John is using, and he is describing this passage in much more detail than the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And is like he's telling us this is going on in Jerusalem. He's telling us it's Passover. The other guys don't say anything about that. And more details. So this is a much more in detail presentation of this same event. And that's one thing to note to know is, you know, when I was because I've been reading a lot of different sources and things and growing up when I would read the book of John, the beautiful thing. And David actually shared a post that I thought was great because basically it's like the Bible is, you know, it can be read in the most uh, I'm going to use the word superficial, but you can read it at surface level and understand it. There's the stories. And that's how I grew up. You read the stories, mm -hmm. but it's also for those who want to go deeper and you can be the most scholarly, advanced, intelligent person and never ending. You can find never ending information within yeah. the scriptures. And the book of John is one of those where people overlook so many things because they're saying, oh, John is just is just sharing stories, but he shares some details that when you look like why Matthew was the one that, that we see was very, he cared about, about details. And he is the one who had the genealogy and all this stuff. But for some reason, there's little details that John shares that now I'm realizing are so important. Mm -hmm. And with the Passover, that was one of them, even the days of the wedding. I thought that was interesting because not a lot of people, I didn't know that about Tuesdays being a double blessing day in, in Jewish, Jewish culture and stuff. But one of the reasons we're going to go back. And again, I don't know if John did this on purpose and I'm studying. I'm, I think in where I'm studying, I'm in chapter six right now, but there's a lot of illusion that John uses in the Old Testament and he almost builds. So he's like going through Torah within his stories and it all ties together because he's painting a picture. Um, in that Bible project video that I shared, they walk you through a little bit of that. So I'm trying to learn for myself because I want to see it. If I don't see it, I'm be like, oh, I don't know. But I am starting to see it. And I, I'm so curious to know, did he do that on purpose? Because if he did, he was a really smart dude that he was able to make those connections. But then again, at that time, it could be that everyone would have known what he was doing because they all, you know, so many of them would have known the scriptures way more than we do, in my opinion. Yeah. Because they studied, I mean, they, you know, back then they used to memorize, the, they used to memorize Torah. Yeah, they, they, well, they had no books. Think about writing on, on, skins, on skins and stuff. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they also, in ways, had a lot more time. It's not that they had more time, it's just that we waste our time so much more <laughs> than they did because they don't. They didn't have the technology we have. So they used to study it and the kids used to study it. So it's just interesting to then go back and be like, oh, so he's building, he's building something. He's telling us something and it's all going back to Torah. And in the end, his purpose is so that everyone 
whether they Jew and non-Jew alike could have the signs that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one that they are looking for. So it's just beautiful. Um, do you guys have anything you want to, any questions or anything you want to add? And that ends our session for today. If you've been blessed by this Bible study, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it with others. It's an honor that you've chosen to join us in this conversation. We'd love to know what you think, how this has blessed you, or even if you have any questions by sending an email to hello at andreajohn.com. To prepare for next week, you can read ahead into John 3. Dive deep, really dig deep to find beautiful treasures of God. Here are two questions that you can ask along the journey. One, what is this telling me about God? Two, what is God telling me about me? That'll allow you to join the conversation with your own study, perspective, opinions, and questions. And if we don't answer the question that you may have, you're always welcome to email us. Or if you have a perspective that we didn't cover, we'd love to hear about it. Because who knows, maybe I'll share it in one of the sessions. So thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Until then, have a blessed day.